Well, welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, uh, one of the pastors here. We are, uh, this is Freedom Sunday. Hooray for freedom. So we're going to be talking about freedom tonight. Um, according to my contract, I get one political sermon a year, so this is going to be it. I'm just kidding. I never signed a contract. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you are here, that you are present with us, that you are available to us. Lord, would you teach us what it means to sit in your freedom, to encounter your realities. Lord, I pray that the things that you've been stirring up within us during worship continue to unravel and establish themselves anew in however you see fit, Lord. We submit to you our mind, our body, our spirit, our hearts. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I came across this story several years ago, um, an old news article that in Montana in the 1870s there was a train wreck, and this wasn't any normal train, this train uh, was a circus train, especially in that day and age, that's how the circus traveled from, um, from city to city and village to village was on a train. Uh, what it, we're, we're not exactly sure what happened, but needless to say, this train was derailed very near a small town in Montana. And so all of the local authorities came together, as you would imagine, to quickly try to make sense of what's going on. Because when this train collapsed and, and broke apart, many of the circus animals got out. And even scarier than that, probably, is that the clowns got out, too. And you don't want your small Montana village overrun with clowns. We've all been there. So... The authorities come in and they're rounding up animals and they're especially looking for the dangerous animals because we don't, you know, there's just a liability there with these lions and tigers and bears running around. Now, perhaps they were most worried about finding the tiger. Wild tigers, as we all know, are incredibly dangerous and they have a tendency to eat human beings. And so they searched high and low for this tiger. And eventually, what they discovered is that when they came to the train where the tiger had originally been kept, the, the gates were swung wide open on this car and the tiger was still sitting inside. Now, very strange. They imagined that this tiger would have burst out and would be running amok through the streets of this small village or perhaps up into the mountains on Montana. But no, this tiger was still sitting in its cage. What had happened? The reality was that this tiger had spent its entire life in captivity. That tiger had only known the parameters of the cage in which it sat. And so even when the doors are burst open and freedom is offered to that tiger, that tiger has no concept of what it means to live outside of the cage. So tonight when we're talking about freedom... I wonder if maybe some of us tonight are not unlike that tiger, you know, where the cage is burst open, but we're still choosing to sit in the safety and the confines of the parameters that have been established for us. Now, I have a rather unique relationship with America and with this idea of freedom. As most of you know, I am an immigrant, and I have all of the things that come along with that, as well as an outsider's perspective on what it means to be an American, even last Night, um, Melanie and I were walking around Lake Eola, and this guy comes up with a clipboard, and he's like, um, can you guys vote? And I said, uh, no, I, I, I'm not a citizen. And he looks, and I happen to be wearing um, a Peru soccer jersey, and he goes, oh, you're from Peru. And then he just leaves. 
right, right reasons, wrong country, but that's okay. And as we were sitting, um, listening to the concert band and getting ready for the fireworks, Melanie turned and she asked me, she said, do you ever feel American? Do you ever, you know, I've been here for 25 years. Do you ever feel particularly American? I said, well, one time I did feel American a couple of years ago when I was living in Nashville. This tree fell down right across my backyard, and instead of um, calling the authorities to come and have it removed, uh, I hacked it up by myself with a hatchet, and I only listened to Leonard Skinner and Kiss while I did it, so... I do feel pretty American from time to time. You're welcome. Um, But I feel blessed in my own personal story. And this is not an indictment against anybody else's. This is just my story. But I feel very blessed in, in the story that God has written for me. That I was able to step into a culture as something still of an outsider. Not bringing along necessarily a heritage of what it means to be an American. What it means to talk about freedom from the 21st century from a necessarily American point of view. And it's given me an opportunity to be able to step into, especially some of the discussions that we've been having in this country recently around the idea of freedom from a rather unique perspective. And so I want us to look at freedom um, in a couple different ways tonight, just to to really come into the, the focus of what is it we're talking about when we talk about freedom especially when we consider all of the many things that are going on in the news. What are we talking about when we talk about freedom in the 21st century? What are we talking about when we talk about freedom in being in the United States of America in such a time as this? And so we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5 tonight, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read the first verse, and then we're going to jump down to the 13th. So here's a little bit of a background on the letter to the church in Galatia. Paul had gone to this city. He had uh, preached the good news. There were many uh, Jewish converts and there were Gentile converts and he had established a church. And then sometime after Paul had left them, other people came in and offered some kind of commentary on the gospel. Paul calls these people Judaizers in the first chapter. And what these Judaizers did is they came to the church in Galatia and they said, Paul preached a a pretty good gospel. Paul preached an almost complete gospel, but there's a few things that he left out. And what these Judaizers did is they came in and they edited and they annotated and they added to the simple gospel that that Paul had proclaimed. And what they essentially did was reintroduce a lot of the Jewish law. Preeminently the thing that Paul talks about in the letter is the, the need for circumcision. If you're going to become a Christian... If you're going to, be, to worship Yahweh, you still have to be circumcised. And you have to still take on all of the things that the Torah says that you are to, to take on to yourself. And so, of course, Paul is livid with this church for listening to these Judaizers because what they were doing was muddying the gospel that he had preached. They came out with this convoluted gospel that was a marriage of what Paul preached standing on the authority of Christ Jesus and all of these other religious attitudes and perspectives that were being reintegrated into something where they were made null and void. So this is the conversation that we find when we step into Galatians chapter 5 with Paul. In Galatians 4, I highly encourage you to go back and read it. It's a fascinating read. Paul takes a look at the story of Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And he makes this analogy that children of Isaac are children of freedom and children of Ishmael are children of slavery. And then he steps in, and this is kind of the crux of his discussion in Galatians. He says this, chapter 5, verse 1. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What is he talking about here when he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free? Remember, a little bit of a history lesson, the Declaration of Independence hasn't been written yet. Little known fact. Nor has the Constitution. That's a joke. You can laugh at that one. It's okay, we're loosey-goosey here. It's okay, we're doing a little exegesis. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about freedom? And not only that, but he says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I believe that we were inherently created to be free creatures. I believe that freedom is one of the codes that is written into our spiritual DNA. A friend of mine in Nashville, we were having a discussion one day, and he said something so profound. He said, very often when we talk about the human condition, we want to start in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man and original sin. But what would happen if we started the conversation in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates all things in creation, and then God creates human beings, and he says, it is very, very good. What if we started there? And I am in no way discounting original sin. But original sin is not the starting point for our conversation with what it means to be human. The starting point is Genesis chapter 1 with our original intention. We're talking about our identity and our vocation, the things that God had established for us. And when he created us, he said it is very, very good. You see, I believe that everything that Paul writes when he's talking about freedom comes from that creation perspective, that Genesis perspective, that something was created in perfection, something went wrong, and God sent his son Jesus to rescue that thing and to bring it back into its original intentions. And so when we're talking about freedom, we're talking about freedom to our original attentions, freedom to our original identities. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So if freedom is something about our original intentions, the way that God had created us to be, then what is slavery? Slavery is marked by boundaries that reduce and diminish us. Freedom is a horizon of discovery in the context of Jesus. So we talk about slavery, we're talking about something that is imposed on us, that reduces us, that makes us small, that limits who we're supposed to be, that becomes these confines. And then in turn, freedom is when those confines are pushed down and it's opened up the possibilities of who we are, of who we're called to be, and how we relate to this world and to its creator. I think just right here, many of us really struggle when we talk about freedom. Because what happens to many of us is we feel that it's actually the opposite. That faithfulness to Christ Jesus is going to be the thing that limits us. That boxes us in. Because we've believed this lie from the world that says freedom means I can now do whatever I want. And then when we're called to a life of discipline, when we start to establish what is sin and what it is that we're truly called to, we feel like it's restricting us in some way. But I think what that betrays is the fact that we don't inherently believe that our created design is something good. 
that the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and the identity afforded us right there is far greater than anything else that we could possibly come up with on our own terms or the things that the world can dictate for us of who we're supposed to be. So when we recognize freedom in Christ Jesus and we begin to explore what that means, the horizon actually opens up for who we're called to be. And we actually open up the context of who God is. I was listening to something earlier, this, this, um, this podcast with Dan Allender, and he was talking about when, he was talking about this idea of beauty, and he said, when you find something beautiful, it allures you and it draws you in deeper. And I love that because I feel like sometimes when we talk about God, we, we talk about something that we, we re- react against and we move away from because we're terrified of it. And in turn, it it boxes us in and it hems us in and it makes us feel small. But when we contemplate the beauty of God, it draws us into his reality and it opens up the possibilities of who he is and it opens up the possibilities of who we are in the light of his love. So I want us to skip down to verse 13 in Galatians 5. So Paul talks specifically about the the idea of circumcision as a stand-in for the entire law. And then he jumps in here In verse 13, he says this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now see, here already some of us feel that pushback. We're like, Paul, don't limit me. Because right here you're saying, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. You're putting boundaries on me. You're putting parameters on me. I can't let that happen. I have to have all of my options available. You see, because the world's told us that's what freedom is. Keep all your options open. Don't let anything define you. Don't let anything box you in. But you see, what Paul does here is he inherently ties together the ideas of freedom and of love. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But he says, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Let me read that again. You are not to do whatever you want. Praise be to God. Again, it feels reductive. It feels like it diminishes. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So how do we make sense of this? I believe this is what Paul's saying in this portion. We are made free through love and for love. We are made free through love and for love. Paul inherently ties together this idea of freedom and this idea of love because you see for Paul, that idea of love is inherent in our DNA. It's our intention in this world. It is our true identity. And this is the only place that I see that we can possibly match this idea of freedom and servanthood. Because he says, serve one another humbly in Christ. Other places it's translated as servanthood. 
And we would say there's freedom and then there's servanthood. And those two things are mutually exclusive. But when we're talking about the context of love, we are most free when we step into that identity of love and we start to respond as lovers. We begin to love the world around us and we leave behind us the world of obligation and the world of law, the external things that speak into us, expectations of what we're supposed to do. But love becomes this internal, lived-in reality of Christ Jesus that transforms us from the inside out, and we begin to live in a world that no longer needs boundaries and expectations and things that make us small and control us, because love breaks down all boundaries, amen? Love opens up. Love points towards the horizon of possibility. In this country, we talk far more about our rights than we talk about our responsibilities. And I think it's actually an indication that we have a serious deficit of freedom. Because if I'm out there fighting for my rights, and everything that I am in this world and everything that I'm about politically is inherently about me standing up for my rights and calling for my rights, I'm saying to the world, this is what I deserve. This is what I've decided identifies me. This is what I want to happen. And anybody that's getting in my way better look out. And we spend so much time in this country fighting for our rights that we don't have a conversation about responsibility. Because when we talk about rights, we're talking about self. But when we're talking about responsibility, we're talking about other people. We're talking about the way in which we love the world. We're talking about the way in which we love our neighbor and the stranger. And it's no wonder in a culture like ours that we destroy each other over fighting for our rights and the things that we think that we deserve. But I'm here to tell you, friends, that that kind of fight is a fight for slavery. For you to go out into this world and to fight for self, to fight for your rights, to fight for the things that you think you deserve, you are enslaved to the desires of your flesh. And they ultimately come short of the glory of God. And we come short of our own identities as his sons and daughters. Let's continue reading what Paul says here in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the unifying factor here in the list that Paul gives us? It's about self. It's about selfish gain. This is what we find in the patterns and the systems of the world, the desires of the flesh and the lies of the enemy, is that it's inherently about self. And it's about me getting what I want out of this world. It's about me fighting for my piece of the pie and everybody else be damned. It's about me taking advantage of whomever comes across my way. Because it's about me getting what I want. 
And the result, what is the result of our desire for selfish gain? Is that we create hierarchies and we create tribes and we divide the human family into these little categories and partitions of the haves and the have-nots and the rich and the poor and black and white and all of these little divisions that we make as human beings where we establish human constructs of who is valuable and who is not. And of course, inherently, we put ourselves in the camp of those who are valuable. And those who aren't very valuable are those who exist for our benefit. We've spoken about this many times before, about this struggle between the concept of lust and the concept of love. The word lust, it inherently means, I am the subject of my own story, and you are the object that I'm going to use to glorify myself, to lift myself up, to exalt myself, and I consume you as another object in this world, another option in order to build myself into who I think I deserve to be. But the story of love, the definition of love says you are the subject. You are the subject of this story. And I am the object being used by God to lift you up, to glorify you, to raise you up into unity with God, to exalt you into the place of your true identity as his son, as his daughter, as his image bearer. These acts of the flesh are obvious because it's us being enslaved to our desires. It's us being enslaved to the way the world says things work. And we go along with it and we tow the party line and we believe that's really what matters in this life. And in the meantime, the oppressed are further oppressed and people are consumed for our benefit. Because the world has told us that freedom means I can do whatever I want. But my friends, that kind of freedom is an illusion. Do you hear me in that? It's an illusion. You are never truly free if that's your definition of freedom. Because if you are able to throw off all of the expectations of society and church and government and family, you are still enslaved to your own fleshly desires. The voracious hunger, that that empty hole within yourself that you're spending so much time trying to fill. And that kind of understanding of freedom ultimately will bring you to ruin. But you see, there's another list in Galatians 5. Paul gives us this list of the acts of the flesh, and he says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in verse 22, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So we have the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. I love the fruit of the Spirit. I love it. 
Do you love it? Israel loves it. Do the rest of you love it? The fruit of the Spirit are not things that we sit around and debate if they're beneficial. None of us sit around and test the merits of the idea of faithfulness. None of us sit around and say, well, is joy really worth it? Of course it is. The fruit of the Spirit are these things that we just, something within us, we see this list and we go, yes, yes. There's something deep within me that affirms every one of those things as the ultimate call in this life. And so we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. What are we talking about? This is how I want to define the fruit of the Spirit tonight. The fruit of the Spirit is the DNA of God and the fabric of His kingdom. It's the DNA of God. This is God's character. You know, for all of us, these fruits, we might demonstrate them in our lives in varying degrees, but God is so totally each of these things that He is them personified. We are capable of being loving, but God is love personified. We're capable of being good, but God is goodness personified. And not only is the fruit of the Spirit the character of God, not only is it in His DNA, but it's also the fabric of His kingdom because the kingdom of God is His character administered into the world. And as we demonstrate the character of God, the kingdom is established in that place. And I love that Paul says, against such things there is no law. Because when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we don't need to talk about boundaries and borders and small definitions that seek to control and reduce and manage because these things are not manageable. Do you hear me? These things are not controllable. These things are not things that fit in our convenient little boxes, but they are things that are begging to burst forth into the world. The fruit of the Spirit is an ever-expanding horizon as the reality of God is administered into this world that begs you to find the boundaries because you will not find them. And here's the beauty of this. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being the DNA and the character of God and we talk about it being the fabric of His kingdom, if you and I are the image of God, the fruit of the Spirit is also your spiritual DNA. Think about that. The fruit of the Spirit is your intended character. It's who you were created to be. It was your original Genesis intention. When God created, when before the creation of the world, He predestined us and He said, it is very, very good. Sometimes we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being a foreign language to us, but I believe rather that it's a language at one time we were all called to speak, and at some point we forgot it, but we're relearning our true identities. We're relearning our true citizenship. And I think it's so amazing, there's a very subversive message here for Paul in the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. When we talk about the word acts, there's inherently some sort of a distance between the perpetrator and the result of those acts. It can be mechanical, it can be forced, it can be kind of um, almost synthetic. 
But when we step over here into this list that is the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is not synthetic. There is no distance between the the vine and the fruit itself, but the fruit is a natural outgrowth of the source. I believe what Paul is telling us here is the acts of the flesh in our true intentions as the sons and daughters of God, as his image bearers, is that the acts of the flesh are synthetic and unnatural to our original intentions, but the fruit of the Spirit was always the thing being spoken over us. The fruit of the Spirit was always the thing that was being written into our spiritual DNA since before time began. So what is freedom? Freedom is not about doing what you want. It's about being who you were meant to be. It's not about doing what you want. When we step into that illusion, number one, it's slavery. Number two, we take advantage of God's grace. And we think that we get to do what we want, that we can define ourselves, that we can make our way in the world by ourselves. But it's actually about being able to say, because of Christ Jesus, because of his work on the cross, because of his resurrection, because of his spirit at work in this day and age, I am finally freed up to step into my divine identity. I am finally free to be who God has been insisting I am since before creation began. That is good news. That is true freedom. Not only does it speak to our identities, but it speaks to our vocations, and it speaks to our true citizenship. Because we have been made free in Christ, our citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. I wish I could print off little picture IDs for everybody in here, and it'd have your name on it, and your height, and your weight, and you can, you can flub that a little bit, that's okay. But it would just say that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you can't really present that to a cop because you're probably still going to get a ticket for doing 45 and a 35. But that is your true citizenship. You're visiting right now. You happen to be living in this country, but your citizenship is in heaven. You know, I think that we're very blessed to live in the country that we do. We do have a tremendous amount of freedom here. I had my punk rock days. I went to all the rallies. I railed against Bush. I lifted my skinny fist like an antenna to heaven, and I made all of the right protests and everything, and I got exhausted because the life of a revolutionary ends up burning out. I believe that we're blessed with many freedoms in this country. But when we begin to see the United States government as our source of freedom, we are in idolatry. When we look to the systems of man to define us or to define freedom, when those things become our source, we are turning them into idols. We are taking what is the right of God and we're saying, that's not good enough, God. Who you say I am is not good enough. I need somebody else to define me. I need someone else to make laws and regulations and put little boxes on things in order to tell me how to live my life, and I need somebody else to enforce it. And we're in idolatry. And just like the Galatians, when we, be, when we put our source in the systems of man, in the governments of man, we reduce our freedom, 
and we end up with a very convoluted gospel. We end up with a gospel that's very similar to the gospel that we hear with Jesus, but woven into it, poisoning it, is the gospel of the world, a gospel of self, a gospel of self-determination, a gospel of self-definition, a gospel of self-glorification, a gospel that says you can go out there and do whatever you want. A couple years ago, I was in a discussion with a friend of mine, and bless his heart, he was saying, I'm so thankful that we have the God-given rights in the Constitution like the Second Amendment. I said, hold on. Hold on just one second. God did not write the Constitution. All right? Those are, those are given to us by man, and there's some great stuff in there, and there's some things that we honestly really need to discuss. There's some things in the Constitution of the United States that we need to talk about. But when we label it as God-given, it prevents us from having those discussions. You with me? You hear me? There are some good things there. But when it becomes convoluted with the gospel, when we put the Constitution on par with Scripture, when we put it on par with the Word of God, we end up like those Galatians where someone's saying, yeah, the gospel that that Paul preaches, it's, it's pretty good. It's mostly there, but let me add in all of these other things that will help you come to a full gospel. And we find ourselves in idolatry. This world is about a gospel of self, and it leads us to slavery and destruction. But in Jesus, we find a very different gospel. True freedom is found in being like Christ, outwardly focused and other centered. Is this not what we find in the life of Jesus? Jesus was so free. He was so open to the fruit of the Spirit. He demonstrated it so purely, the reality and the character of God, that it freed him up to be completely outwardly focused and other-centered. You don't see Jesus going around fighting for his rights and what he thinks he deserves. But you do see Jesus being very responsible with the time he's been given and the gifts that he's been given. Now, you have to trust that this definition of freedom, the definition that you have in Christ, has always inherently been part of who you're called to be, and that it is far greater than any definition that you can give on your own. But, like that circus tiger still sitting in the cage after the door has already been blown open, you have to step out into the open. You have to step out and fix your eyes upon the horizon of freedom in Christ or you'll continue to sit in the cage that has been erected around you believing that safety is the right answer, that the systems of man are the right systems to have. And so what does this kind of freedom look like? What does it look like to live in freedom in Christ in the 21st century? Freedom in Christ looks like 21 young men, 21 young Coptic Christians in Libya last year singing praises to God while they're being beheaded by ISIS. That's what freedom looks like. Freedom looks like the families of the people slain in the Charleston shooting forgiving Dylan Roof before he even goes to trial. That's what freedom looks like. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. 
Freedom looks like engaging people who disagree with you on the gay marriage debate and still treating your opponent like the dignity of humanity that they deserve. That is freedom in Christ. To see someone the way that God does, and even though you disagree with them, to still offer them the dignity of being human. Freedom looks like for all of us to enter into the public forum in this country and to cry out for true freedom, to cry out for a higher freedom, a freedom that can only be found in the kingdom of God. The government will not save you. The Constitution will not save you. Capitalism will not save you. Communism will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus is far greater than any other freedom that is offered to you in this world. So if you'd stand with me, please. How do you define freedom? Does your definition of freedom center on yourself? Or does it center on God? Do you look to the patterns of the world to know what freedom is? Or do you look to Christ Jesus? Do you follow along with the expectations of our society? Or do you try the best you can to keep in step with the Spirit? Tonight, we want to celebrate freedom. We're thankful for the freedom that we have in this country, but that's not the final word because we submit to a higher freedom. We submit to a greater freedom. We recognize the right and the will of God to define us as his sons and daughters, and we cast off all other places of bondage and slavery that would seek to reduce us and diminish us and to keep us back from our true identities. Because it's ultimately about us being freed through love for love. There is no higher calling. There is no greater definition of freedom. So let us pray and let us celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Father God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you, for what you have done for us, what you accomplished through Christ Jesus on the cross, what you have administered through his resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the advancement of the kingdom of God. Lord, we let go of any of the definitions of this world. We let go of any of the desires of our flesh. We let go of any of the lies of the enemy that seek to diminish us and reduce us and keep us back from you. And we turn our faces to you. And we allow you to define us as your sons and your daughters, as your image bearers, Lord. We choose the life of the Spirit and we reject the life of the flesh. Father, I declare right now the inheritance of your kingdom over these dear ones. 
I call forth the fruit of the Spirit, the thing that has been written into our DNA since before the creation of the world, that you have predestined us to stand as your sons and your daughters, to reflect your character into a world that desperately needs healing, that desperately needs deliverance, that desperately needs your freedom, because the freedom of the world is not working. Father, we turn to you moment to moment, day to day, and we say yes to your freedom. And we say no to all of the counterfeits of the world. Father, seal our freedom with the strong name of Jesus and the presence of his Holy Spirit. We pray these things in his name. Amen.